Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Your hosts are Becky Olson and Sharon Hennepin. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, their friends and family with the resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here are your hosts, Sharon and Becky. Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. My name is Becky Olson. I'm a four-time, nearly 22-year survivor of advanced stage breast cancer. I'm also a motivational speaker, a speaker mentor, and the published author of The Hat That Saved My Life. Hello there, and I'm Sharon Hennepin. I'm a 24-year survivor, certified life coach, and the author of my brand new book, Thriving Beyond Cancer. And we're the uh, co-founders of Breast Friends. And before we jump into the show, I just wanted to do a quick inspirational moment because, um, you know, we get prepared for this radio show every single week. And it's amazing how flexibility is going to be my my word for today. Because Mine too. <laughs> sometimes, yep, sometimes, right, Becky? Um, you can do absolutely everything to prepare, but you still need to be flexible because some things, when you're using technology or you're using um, guest speakers or, you know, even us, Becky, um, you know, we have to be flexible with each other and with the environment that we're working in. So I just wanted to get that in there before we started our show. <laughs> That's a good point. Yes, indeed, especially when talk, technology changes and they don't warn you. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to get right on our show, though, because we have a lot of content. And our guest today is Dr. Margaret Flowers. Dr. Flowers is the Director of Scientific Communication and Grants for the Breast Cancer Research Foundation. And we're going to talk about emerging trends in breast cancer research with all the promises and all the challenges. Welcome, Dr. Flowers. Thanks for being on our show today. Thank you both so much for inviting me. I'm just absolutely feel so privileged to be here with you today and um, very much looking forward to the conversation. So thank you so much. Well, why don't you start by introducing yourself and just tell us a little bit about how you got into the work that you're doing now. Okay. Well, um, as you said, my name is Margaret Flowers. Um, I um, have been with the Breast Cancer Research Foundation since 2014, and before that I was with the Susan G. Komen Foundation for about three years. Um, my job at Breast Cancer Research Foundation is really to oversee the administrative aspects of a $59.5 million research grant portfolio, and wow, that wow. supports over 275 investigators in 15 countries. Um, so that's part of my job. And a a big part of my job is in really communicating the impact that that research investment has to our donors and our stakeholders. And so in doing that, I work very closely with our development partnerships and our communications teams to deliver that message across a variety of platforms. And before I get too far into the conversation, I do um, also want to state that um, any views or, or opinions that I state are not necessarily the views or opinions of BCRF or its scientific leadership. So I just want to be clear about that, although I don't think there would be any, any controversy there. But um, Yeah, Voice so, America has that disclaimer with us, too, so that's okay. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we get it. Uh, we get yeah, it. Yeah, so, exactly. So let so me ask you, are my, you a... My path, pardon me? Are you a, an MD doctor or a PhD doctor? I am a, I am a PhD. I'm a scientist okay. by training. Okay. And my PhD is in nutritional sciences and cancer biology. 
Wonderful. But before that, I was uh, I, I worked in a much different laboratory, and that was um, in kitchens. I through most of my adult life, I was um, in the hotel. I was a hotel and resort chef. So it was a little bit of um, change of career about midlife, and so I had I didn't have an exactly a, a direct route to to where I am, but um, I ended up going back to school in my 40s, and I continued to work at a health and wellness resort called Canyon Ranch in Tucson, Tucson, Arizona, and I started out thinking that I would couple a nutrition degree to my culinary background, or perhaps uh, with a you know a pursue a, a career in sports nutrition really inspired by the wellness environment um, that I worked in as well as my personal interest in fitness. And I was totally surprised when I found myself falling in love with the biochemistry and the molecular side of nutrition. And what I mean by that is that what happens at the cellular and gene level um, between nutrients and other cellular components and that's when I realized that I really probably didn't want to go into clinical nutrition, but that I wanted to do research. And, Sharon, uh, Sharon research we have a really smart radar. person. We have a smart person on the line with us. <laughs> <laughs> if, I, if, I, if, I, if, I, if I start talking too fast or say things that, that, um, that you don't understand, please stop me. Please yeah. stop me. No, that's um, okay. We'll just so interrupt you from time to time. On my so. radar. And um, I had lost my mother to metastatic breast cancer about 10 years before I went back to school. And um, going into breast cancer research just really felt a little too close, a little too personal. I was my mother's caregiver. So there was, you know, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of personal things involved with just getting that close to cancer. But I was inspired by an instructor um, at the U of A, University of Arizona, where I was going to school. And he was talking to the class about a drug, a new, a new drug that could prevent breast cancer in high-risk women. So um, hmm. it was meant to prevent a secondary breast cancer or maybe a primary breast cancer in someone who had a high family, high family um, risk. And that drug was tamoxifen. And it was the first anti-estrogen or what we call endocrine therapy approved for breast cancer prevention. Uh And I remembered how helpless I felt when my mother, um, as my mother's caregiver Uh at the end of her life, and I wondered how her outcome may have been different if her breast cancer had not come back. And it was that moment that I decided that I would go into cancer research, breast cancer research, and really had the, if I might say, naive view that I could make a difference in someone else's mother's life. Um, oh, no, I, I think that's a do... great, great motivation for you, um, <laughs> doctor. That's, that's amazing. So the, the, let's talk about the basics in screening and, and surveillance, because um, I think that's an important piece of this. Um, what does screening for breast cancer mean to you, and what are the guidelines? Well, screening is basically looking for something in a healthy person. So someone who doesn't have any symptoms of breast cancer, for instance, when we go and get our annual mammograms, that's a screening mammogram. And the, the goal is to detect uh, a breast cancer before the person actually um, has any symptoms. And by detecting it early, the chances are that treatments um, are going to work better, that it will be small enough so that surgeries can be, you know, uh, less invasive. And so the idea is to detect it early um, when, uh, when treatment can be most effective. 
Now, the guidelines, I think probably, you know, many of your listeners have, you know, possibly been confused about the various guidelines that they've seen come across the the news waves. Um, There's some debate over when a a woman at what we call normal or average risk should begin breast cancer screening. And I think this has created some confusion across um, the general lay public. So there's a, there was a task force developed by the government called the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, and this is comprised by experts who, who reviewed years and years of literature to determine what, what is the right time to start screening a woman where you, um, you have the most benefit and the least amount of risk of missing something. And in their most recent um, report, they determined that the evidence was not strong enough for annual mammograms starting at 40, and their recommendation was biannual screening between the ages of 50 and 74. And um, I think probably many of us remember the outcry that that created and a lot of concern that insurance companies would no longer pay for mammograms um, and women under 50, um, Mm -hmm. that a lot of women uh, still are diagnosed with breast cancer under 50, and, you know, what about that group of people? So that does create a bit of controversy. Now, other organizations, the American Cancer Society, for instance, has a modified version of that, and they feel that annual screening between 45 and 54 is appropriate, um, and then women over 55 should continue to be screened as long as they're healthy and have a 10-year lifespan. Um, now, many cancer organizations, BCRF included, and many professional organizations still believe that annual, mam- am- annual mammograms at 40 um, are, are, are important. And I think that the take-home message from all of the conversations that have occurred around this point is that it's a woman's choice and it's a conversation she needs to have with her doctor. She needs to really assess her own personal risk and determine that. And um, at, you know, currently, most insurance companies are paying for a screening mammogram starting at 40, so it has not impacted the access to, to screening mammography. So those well, now that's good. Of, we're, we've, we yeah. were involved in that fight ourselves. Yes, both we were. Becky and I were, were both diagnosed before um, 50, long before 50. I was 40 and Becky was 43. And so, yeah, we actually went to Washington, D.C. and had that conversation with some of our Congress people, along with a lot of other people uh, in, what, 2015, wasn't that, Becky? Yeah, yeah I think. I think it was 15, yeah, and and the moratorium on the on the uh, the change is supposed to be up right now, you know, this month in January of 2018. But I guess they got another year on it, so so they're just kind of pushing back that decision to to roll that out. But um, and it is confusing, Doctor Flowers. I mean, it's even if the insurance companies are still paying for it. If you hear, if you're a woman and you hear, well, I don't really need a mammogram until I'm 45 or 50 because that's what the experts say, and then they don't get screened. We have met so many women in our work at Breast Friends over 17 years, so many women who are in their 40s, early 40s, and sometimes younger, that got a surprise diagnosis when they went in for a routine mammogram. And, you know, I, for one, probably wouldn't be here. Um 
a lot of us wouldn't be here if we hadn't caught it when we did. So we're oh, going to yeah. continue yeah. to push I, on and, that. And, and so, so I think it's a really important message that just because you don't have family history, just because you don't think you will be um, uh, one that would get breast cancer, uh, you still need a mammogram because, boy, oh, boy, that is that is just a scary thought because, unfortunately, yeah. just the family connection is only a small percentage compared to what the rest of us ended up having. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's a tough You know, I'm, I'm really curious have, about this. I'm very emotionally involved in that one. <laughs> yeah, you are, Sharon. Um I have a. I want to ask you this question about some kind of a new blood test that can they can detect a new cancer. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Um, so we're hearing a lot about what what we're calling liquid biopsy. So I, I think most of your audience is familiar with the the um, term biopsy, and what that typically is is a, a tissue sample taken from the area of interest. So, you know, a, a breast tumor, uh, you know, something that's detected on mammogram um, to, to assess it as whether or not it's cancer. Okay. Right. And these are, these are invasive procedures. And, but the idea is that the biopsy provides information about the tumor or whatever it is they're interested in. It may not be a tumor. It may be um, something benign, but it just, you know, looks like a tumor in, in right. the imaging. So a liquid biopsy is something that's achieved through a, a sample of blood. And um, we're hearing a lot about that. And the technology uh, is relatively young, um, but it's, it's growing very, very quickly. There's um, liquid biopsy is being used in clinical trials to um, what, what I want to say serially um, test patients who are undergoing treatment. And when I say serially, I mean that every time they go in for a checkup, for, you know, to see the, to go into the clinic, they get a blood, uh, they, you know, give a sample of blood, which can be looked at for um, tumor cells, which have become detached from the original tumor and then enter the circulation. So these are called circulating tumor mm-hmm. cells. But there's also other things in the blood that are associated with the tumor that can be detected. Now, the technology is, is, is young yet, and it's very promising, but we're not at the point where we can really detect new cancers. Um, the most successful use of liquid biopsy right now is in um, the space where people have advanced cancers. The larger the tumor the more likely a tumor cell is going to get, you know, enter the circulation. And so what we've seen is that the more advanced tumors, um, more tumor cells or more tumor factors are able to be isolated from the, from the tumor, from the, excuse me, from the blood, whereas early breast cancers, not so much. But mm-hmm. the promising part of that is we are discovering other factors of the tumor that may be in the blood, and the technology is just getting more more sensitive. Yeah. So right now, we can't really detect new cancers, but there's been some promising research. For instance, um, a recent a recent study that got a lot of um, press you know, right around uh, the holidays, right before Christmas. There was a big meeting in San Antonio, um, San, San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. And a group there presented data that showed that the detection of just one tumor cell in patients that had completed five years of hormone therapy could predict a um, recurrence 
a second cancer within two years. So that's oh, really, wow. that's really promising. But you know, mm-hmm. the the caveat to that news, and I want to make sure that there's no confusion, is that. There's, this study needs to be repeated in more people, okay? It's very sure. promising. It's very exciting. But what I, I want to say is we're going in the right direction, um, but there's, there's a lot of more work that needs to be done. Another thing that we really need to do is these factors that we're getting out of the blood, they all really need to be validated. And what I mean by that is that, you know, you don't want to use a test that doesn't really give you consistent information, so when, you know, a biomarker, for instance, is a, is a, a marker that, that tells us something about the disease or the tumor um, that is clinically useful and it's consistent. And until we can show that these biomarkers that we're getting in blood that relate to the tumor are consistent and are, mm-hmm. you know, validated across multiple trials... We don't. We, we really don't want to move too quickly. There's a scientist that I know who says there's you know a bad test is just as bad as a bad drug. So you don't want you know we you have we have to be patient and let these let these um, tests um, finish and and you know see where we are with that. But it's very promising technology, and patients you know, you know the impact on patients is going to be tremendous if we're able to do this. Great. Well, Dr. Flowers, we actually have to go out on break. So we are going to pick this conversation up on the other side. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. For Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio, visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a card that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states. Giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regions Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. 
You may also send an email to Becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to our program. We've been talking about emerging trends in breast cancer research with our guest, Dr. Um, Margaret Flowers. So um, I've been always curious, and I know there's always been some question about DCIS or stage zero breast cancer. So from a, from a um, scientific perspective, tell us a little bit what you think about the stage zero breast cancer. Well, that's a great question, and you know, you're right. This is another. This is another very controversial topic, and you know, again, we could talk a whole hour on just this topic alone. Um, so, DCIS stands for ductal carcinoma in situ, and what that means is that there is a growth in the milk-producing ducts, and in situ translates to in its original place. So what that means clinically is that the growth is contained. Now, as opposed to an invasive ductal carcinoma, which has invaded the local tissue, an invasive tumor is considered malignant because of its potential to cause harm. Okay, and so that's kind of where this whole distinction, this whole controversy emanates, I think, is that is DCIS cancer... Or is it a precancer? Okay, and that's really important from the patient perspective, um, in terms of the word cancer. Some some people feel that it, sh- it shouldn't have cancer in the word. So yeah. I think let, that's let me let me let me clarify one patient. thing too, because that also you're also talking about LCIS for those people that may have been diagnosed with. Um, in the in the lobe, so instead of ductal, uh-huh. it could be um, a, a, a lobular carcinoma in situ as well, right? That's true, but they're they're treated very differently. It's a very they are okay. Very, okay, good very to know. Differently, exactly. Lobular um, um, LCIS is really treated as a precursor to breast cancer, and it doesn't get in most in most cases it does not get treated like a cancer. DCIS, in most cases, the standard of care for DCIS is the same for an invasive cancer. So surgery, radiation, and many times uh, uh, hormone therapy. So Hmm. this is a shame because less than half of these DCIS will actually progress to be an invasive breast cancer. Less than half. The problem is... The problem wow. is that we don't know who will and who won't. Exactly. And, and so what do you do with that information, right? And so this is where the controversy comes in. There are groups. Um, there Actually, there are a couple of uh, important clinical trials going on that are looking at trying to personalize the risk assessment as well as the treatment for DCIS. So one of those is called the WISDOM trial, and it's out of um, University of California, San Diego, or excuse me, University of California, San Francisco. And the other one is called the Comet. And they're both, they're, they're, they have different approaches. One is really trying to personalize the screening approach, like how often should a woman be screened based on her, based on her risk, her own personal risk. Um, and the other one is really kind of similar to a watch and wait. So when a woman is, is um, diagnosed with DCIS, 
to wait before going to, before going into surgery. I think many of us has probably heard of the watch and wait um, uh, process for prostate cancers um, right. to avoid overtreatment. So both of these these trials are really trying to identify biomarkers that might help us in knowing which women with DCIS should really receive aggressive treatment and which women are okay to to wait and you know it's it's still it's still really tricky because it because it contains the word cancer it's frightening Yes, um, and true. so it's 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 really a struggle in the clinical world. I'm not a clinic I'm not a clinician, but um, it, you know through my job at BCRF, I, I work with a lot of clinicians and I, I talk to a lot of clinicians. And it's you know it's it is controversial. There are people on both sides of the issue. But I think mm-hmm. what's good about it is that is that it is an issue, and um, mm-hmm. that we're really talking about over treatment. Um, does you know? Mm-hmm. Does every woman with DCIS need surgery, radiation therapy, and then and you know all of these things have side effects? You they know, do. Um, they do absolutely. Yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> and so I'm 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 glad it's an issue, and I'm glad that there's work being done. Um, both of these trials are active in recruiting, so I'd be happy to share information to any any of your listeners who would who might want to um might might want to get involved with those or find out more. Right. Great, that's great. great. So let's let's shift gears just a bit, um, and let's talk about survivorship. That's kind of my hot button in a lot of ways. Um, You know, my book's called Thriving Beyond Cancer. That that is that whole time when people have been um, uh, dismissed. Not dismissed. That's not the best word. But but um, their doctors are moving on to other patients, and they are technically done with their treatment yeah, and released so they're from active moving treatment. on yeah. and unfortunately it's hard to move on um, because many times you don't actually get through the emotional piece of it while you're going through the physical piece of it and uh, so survivorship is a big issue so after all the treatments and surgeries breast cancer you know survivors do face a lot of different issues and so is there anything you think that is important to tell these people? Um... Well, first of all, I'd say you're absolutely right that unfortunately many um, friends and family often think that everything is over once the treatment ends. Um, and, and, and that leaves the, the breast cancer patient kind of on her own. Um, but but the, the the fact is that no one really is alone. Okay, um, advances in detection and treatment have resulted in a, a more than a, about forty percent decline in breast cancer deaths in the last twenty five years, and this has resulted right. in the largest cancer survivorship group in the U.S. over three point five million women living with breast can- living with a history of breast cancer, and so there's a lot there's a lot of you out there. Um, the survivorship journey is unique, just like everyone's cancer is unique. And, um, you know, I can't, I can't speak from a survivorship perspective, and I know that you and many of your callers are probably, um, probably able to provide that kind of help to friends and family who receive this diagnosis. But there are also a lot of wonderful patient-oriented websites, yours included, that um, provide resources 
support groups and other information that um, it, that it is tremendous. And I mean, I can name off several of them that are excellent resources. And again, happy to share this information um, with your call with your um, your listeners. But there's really a lot out there in terms of support. That said, you you mentioned that some of these effects go on for, you know, it can be many years. Some some side effects happen during therapy, but there are both physical and psychological, emotional side effects that last a long time past therapy. Stuff like fatigue and cognitive cognitive function. Sometimes we're used to hearing that as um, chemo brain. Um, And, you know, pain, fear of recurrence, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Mm -hmm. other women deal with difficulties with sexuality and intimacy because of side effects from their treatment, vaginal dryness and things like that. Um, Young women deal with early onset menopause and other, you know, things that affect their, you know, their relationships or their ability to start a family. There's a lot of research in the area. Um, and there's definitely progress being made in terms that um, doctors now can manage these side effects much better than they, than they used to be able to. And so the most important thing is for women to talk to their oncologist or even their primary care physicians when they go in for their usual care about anything, no matter how trivial or unrelated it may seem, to talk about that with your doctor because there, you know, there is help. There's, there are still things that we don't know how to help with, but there's work being done in how to mitigate the um, peripheral neuropathy or that numbness that some patients have for many years after chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is really learning how to de-escalate treatment. And what I mean by that is personalizing treatment, just like we were talking about with DCIS, making the treatment appropriate for the disease and the patient. So not every patient Mm -hmm. needs to to have an aggressive um, cancer if her breast cancer is low risk of recurrence. So there's a lot of work being done in that area. But I think really the take-home message is do not ignore any symptoms, physical, emotional, anxiety. Any of these things should not be um, disregarded. And, again, family and friends may not realize that these things are still, you know, are still going on. And so, you know, it's it's time for the patient to really um, take care of herself, both physically um, and emotionally, and um, make sure that she communicates um, how she's feeling to her doctor and and her loved ones. And you know, this and that's is where the main reason being a, yeah. your own best health advocate really comes in, because again, yeah. your doctor isn't a mind reader, and so they need to be told what's going on and what you know what's good, what's bad, and you know what you think should be cleared up by now, perhaps. Yeah, and I think that's also where some of the patient, um, the patient groups come in, the advocacy groups that you know have online um, um, communities. Uh, they because there are there are other women, there are other patients going through the same thing, um, and so being you know getting involved in some you know, and it's it all really it takes is just kind of going in. A lot of these sites have you know long you know uh, menus of different um, topics of of interest that you know affect. Um, survivors and, you know, long-term survivors. And 
So I think, you know, those are really, really valuable resources for um, women after, after breast cancer, especially when their visits to the oncologist are um, more infrequent, and, um, but they're still dealing with these issues. Do not ignore them. Yeah, and you know, yeah, we started exactly. Breast Friends because we wanted to make sure that women, not only the ones going through cancer at this time, but they're not alone, but also we have, uh, you know, volunteers that are on hand to talk to patients. If they, mm-hmm. they are through their treatment, they're going through that emotional thing. So Breast Friends is a great resource for that, too. And we're pretty proud of the work we've done over 17 years. So we're very tuned into that survivorship you know, issue, and it is... So very, very important. You know, we're going to run out of time in this next segment, too. So let me, um, I want to switch gears again, if you guys don't mind, for just a moment. Um, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about metastases, because we've, you know, I've just recently, I was diagnosed for the fourth time, and that was in October, and my cancer had metastasized, they said, and it was... um, it basically came back in the same spot it was in before eight years ago, but it was behind my breastbone near my chest wall, and they treated it very aggressively, and now it seems to be gone again. Um, could you explain what is metastases and how common is it? Because now we're thinking maybe it yeah. hadn't metastasized, it's just being stubborn, So, <laughs> which mm, I like mm, much okay, better. Okay, that's but, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so, so breast cancer metastasis occurs when a tumor cell or cells... Uh, break away from the primary tumor in the breast and enter the circulation to form a, a tumor in a distant organ. And the most common sites of, of breast cancer metastasis are the brain, the bone, liver, and lung. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the primary cause of breast cancer-related deaths because we still don't have a cure for metastasis. Um, a, a study conducted by the uh, National Cancer Institute um, in, in um, cooperation with the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance, um, a nonprofit uh, uh, advocacy group that just focuses on the awareness of, of, um, of metastasis. They reported in a, a publication that about 25% of patients who are diagnosed with early stage breast cancer will go on to, um, to be diagnosed with metastasis. And they estimate that about 155,000 women are living, you know, are, are alive with metastasis today. So it's, it's not curable, but we've made, we have made um, progress in treating it. So, um, for instance, uh, women who were diagnosed, about 11% of women diagnosed about 10 or 15 years ago with metastatic breast cancer at their first diagnosis, so they, we call that de novo um, metastasis, um, are still are lived beyond 10 years. And a lot of that has to do with treatment, but there are other factors too. You know, it's all, it's all you know, an individual, it's all an individual disease. Um, but the five-year survival rate for um, patients diagnosed with um, de novo metastasis has doubled from 18% to 36%. So women are, um, they are living with metastasis much longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, there is encouragement, but we have so, so much more work to do in better treatments, but also just stopping it, preventing yeah. it from happening. And there's a lot of work being done um, in basic research to understand what we can do to stop that process. It's a multi-step process. So there are lots of places for intervention, but we still, there's, there's still a lot we don't know. And the other really complicated thing is that every person's 
tumor, every person's cancer is very, very unique. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's a combination of what we call host factors, the, you know, our, our own personal factors along with the tumor factors. And it's, it's, it's very complicated. And I totally understand how frustrated people get about the pace of research. Um, having watched my own mother die, um, I totally get it. And it, it is, it is really frustrating to still not have an answer yet. Yeah, it, it is. You'd think with all these, you know, billions of dollars being spent on research that they'd have all of it figured out by now. But the cancer is tough and it, it morphs and it just, you know, it's just not a not a super easy answer. I remember having a phone conversation with a young woman um, not too long ago who told me that her that her cancer had come back and it had metastasized. And I asked her where it went to. And she said, my lymph nodes. And I thought that was really interesting that it was kind of equating just going into the lymph nodes as metastases, but you're saying that it's when it goes into a vital organ. So what's the difference between metastases and stage four? Because they, they seem well, to be met- separate stage terms. Four but... is, stage four is metastatic breast cancer. Now, right. breast cancer that has gone into the lymph nodes, um, I may not be exactly correct on that term, but I think that might be considered a micrometastasis. Um, what that that increases the risk or basically notifies the doctor that the tumor is more aggressive. It may have spread to other organs. Mm-hmm. So when a, when a patient is diagnosed with breast cancer and has breast cancer cells in the lymph nodes, they consider that, you know, um, stage three breast cancer. So it's still not stage four until it is in a distant right. organ. Okay. Um, but it, it just says that the, the, the breast cancer is more aggressive um, mm. and there's this possibility that it has or will spread to other organs. So she probably heard micrometastases, but actually only heard metastases. Possibly, <laughs> so, yeah, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. You know what, yeah, we yeah. need to go out on another break. So um, stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Fascinating conversation. Thank you. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to keep our doors open and to keep this radio program alive. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can visit us at breastfriends.org. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. For Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio, visit breastfriends.org and contribute today. When was the last time you felt free? It's time to uncover that feeling again with the compassion of a cross and shield and the power of a card that opens doors to the best hospitals and medical centers in all 50 states. Giving you the freedom to love, to dream, to dance like no one is watching. Regions Blue Cross Blue Shield. Live fearless. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned into Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. To reach the program today, please call us at 1 866 472 5792. Again, that's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Becky at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the program. We've been talking about emerging trends in breast cancer research with our guest, Dr. Margaret Flowers. So I'm just so curious about the new therapies that are on the horizon. Can you kind of tell us what's going on now? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm glad, we, I'm glad we're, we're switching gears um, from, you know, the story about metastasis because there's actually some very promising um, uh, promising drugs in, in, in terms of metastasis. Um, we've had four drugs approved in, I want to say, the last 18 months, two years, that are for advanced uh, breast cancer. Um, three of those belong to a class called CDK4 inhibitors, and um, by their, their trade names or their, um, their co- um, brand names are Ibrance, Kiskali, and Verzenio. And they all work by similar mechanisms, and they are, they've done tremendously well in uh, prolonging uh, disease-free survival, so prolonging the time when a woman does not have is disease-free. In women who have um, ER positive, and that's the type of breast cancer that um, responds to hormones, um, so ER positive breast cancer that... Um, that has stopped responding to hormone therapy. So the, the drugs are given in combination with a hormone therapy, and they've done, they've done really, really well. And I, I think that's really exciting news for patients that have that type of breast cancer. Most, um, because ER-positive breast cancer can occur many years after, well, number one, it's, it's the most common breast cancer, so it's also going to be the most common breast cancer that, um, you know, that becomes metastatic just in terms of numbers um, and the fact sure. that it can come back many years after diagnosis. And so it does affect a large patient population. Uh, just recently, there was another drug approved um, in the class called PARP inhibitors. And um, this, uh, this drug called Limparza is for patients who have a BRCA mutation. And we didn't talk about BRCA today. That would, again, be another hour's <laughs> worth of conversation. Definitely. But um, So you know, BRCA, the BRCA mutation um, it, it increases the risk of breast cancer um, significantly. Um, and, and the PARP inhibitors are... These, the, the tumors that have BRCA mutations are very sensitive to PARP inhibitors, and they've been improved in ovarian cancers with BRCA um, mutations. And just recently, there was um, a, a one improved, approved for BRCA mutations that have that do not have the HER2 receptor. This is another uh, category of breast cancers that are driven by a protein called HER2. 
and the print, the most aggressive type of breast cancer, which is called triple negative. So that's really, really exciting news for um, for patients in those groups. And then there's you know there's a lot of work being done in immunotherapy. And, you know, we haven't seen the types of successes in breast cancer that we have in lung and melanoma, but, um, you know, researchers are getting really creative about combination therapies. Um, You know, we're finding that chemotherapy sensitizes tumors to immunotherapy. Radiation therapy sensitizes tumors to to immunotherapy, so there's really great possibilities and um, in combining those those two therapies, um, we do see some success in in certain patients with immunotherapy, such as the triple negative breast cancers and some HER2 patients. But it's it's still very you know it's still only about you know less than twenty percent of patients in clinical trials, so we have a long way to go there. Um, there's another new drug that's in phase three trials that um, that is um, tr- there's for it's, it's it's shown some success a, a lot you know very promising success in patients with triple negative breast cancer that have gone through other types of therapy and not responded or you know not responded well so that's very exciting for patients with triple negative which is a which is a very aggressive disease. So, and then we, you know, that, that particular one is a very targeted therapy and it attacks, it, it, it sort of hones in on a specific protein that's found on about 90% of triple negative breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So that's very promising. It's in phase three clinical trials. Um, it's that's been fast tracked by the FDA. So we're hoping that we can, um, you know, that it will benefit patients soon. Yeah, that's Very really good. great. Yeah. That's that's really good. You know, I know there's a lot of people that do ask about trials and clinical trials, you know, how to get involved in one. <clears throat> excuse me. And then there's also a lot of of people that are concerned about trials because they think that you the choice is you're either going to get a placebo or you're going to get the new drug and we know it's it's not the placebo. They get the standard of care or they get maybe the standard mm-hmm. of care plus the plus the new drug, but but how could you explain kind of how trials work and then what do people know, what do women need to know about getting involved in, in perhaps a clinical trial? Yeah, that's just, just a great question. So, you know, I think the first thing that, that I want to say is that the only way to advance medicine is through clinical trials. Okay, that's, you know, nothing goes from the laboratory to the patients. And the only way to identify what works and what doesn't is is in clinical trials. Um, That said, only about 3% of cancer patients enroll in clinical trials. So when you think about that, you know, we're making um, treatment guidelines based on a very small percentage of patients who are enrolled in clinical trials. And, um, and and when you start thinking about minority groups, such as older patients, over 70, for instance, and um, racial and ethnic minorities, they're very underrepresented in these clinical trials. So it's just so important that we see more diversity in clinical trials and just more patients. I mean, there are so many clinical trials that are going on because there's so many promising uh, treatments and and um, and therapies that need to be tested and and. Uh, enrolling patients on the clinical trials is challenging for all of these clinical researchers. And you're yeah. right, there are a lot of myths that discourage patients from, from getting involved. And, you know, like you said, that, you know, the studies might not be safe and, you know, I'll be gambling. And, you know, the fact is that 
Patients enrolled in clinical trials get the best treatment they can get anywhere because it's so regulated. You know, I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're, you know, the investigators have to take, you know, keep a close watch for any kind of side effects, um, anything adversely that happens that, you know, the, the, the investigators know right away. And so, um, you know, it's just, it's, you know, they're, they're getting much better care than, than, than they could any other way. Um, and also to your point about the placebos, placebos are very rarely used in cancer research because it, it would be, it would be unethical. Um, yeah. the only, the only time a placebo would be used is if there was not already a standard of care. And that's rare in, in breast cancer and in many cancers. We have at least some standard to compare. Um, many right. clinical trials will be comparing the standard of care to the standard of care plus another experimental agent. So everybody mm-hmm. gets at least the standard of care. Um, and, you know, maybe they're, they're testing to see if the combination is better than the standard of care. So, you know, there's, you know, there's not... There's not a placebo, there's very rarely a placebo group. Um, Some of the other myths of, um, um, let me see here, oh, they're only for patients who, um, you know, have, have no other options. So patients with advanced disease that, that have no other options. And there are clinical trials, you know, phase one clinical trials that are, you know, uh, designed, you know, for patients that are, um, you know, that have no other options left. Um, but there's a lot of clinical, there are clinical trials for every, every phase of breast cancer or every, you know, um, every part of the journey. So, um, breast cancer trials for prevention and breast cancer trials to, prevent recurrence. So there's a lot of different options. Um, Insurance sometimes, people are afraid their insurance won't pay for it. A lot of times it does, and often a lot of times the clinical trials themselves are budgeted to uh, pay for the treatments. So, um, wow, so, so much yeah, to I mean, know. So there's, there's not a lot of reason not to get involved if there's a particular, <laughs> if there's a there's particular some, trial that would, you know, benefit yourself potentially or, mm-hmm. you know, others right. behind right. you. Yeah, it sounds right. amazing. I mean, they, they, and we just, we need to really make sure we're taking those myths away and, yeah, and so exactly. people really understand the importance of this. I remember, didn't you watch that movie too, Becky, about the how Herceptin got yeah. on to the... Harry Connick um, Jr. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was fascinating, you know, and, and people with that, um, uh, with the HER2 protein in their system and their breast cancer, there wasn't anything that was touching it. Yeah. You know, the standard right, of care right. for ERPR, you know, um, positive uh, breast cancer was not working for those women. And, and you know, unfortunately, they were dying until yeah. Herceptin came along. And so that's a perfect example of how this amazing drug was introduced into the, into the mainstream because of clinical trials. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I have a question about clinical trials because there's, like you said, there's so many and you know what, what really needs to happen? There needs to be a clearinghouse for all of the trials and where they pull them all together and you can kind of figure out what, which trials are available for which patients because it's really up mm-hmm. to the doctors to refer the patient for a trial, right? And, and they're well, only going to know about the ones they resource. know about. I'm there sorry? There is a resource that patients can use. Okay. Um, it's called breast 
um, breastcancertrials.org. Okay. And um, it's patient-oriented, so it's not meant for doctors. It's for patients, and patients can search by their type of breast cancer, by mm-hmm. location, you know, whether, you know, geographical location. Um, it's, it is a wonderful resource. Now, the, the clinical trials site that the government operates called, you know, clinicaltrials.gov is really not very patient-friendly. I mean, you know, patients can learn to use it, but this, the um, breastcancertrials.org is a fantastic resource. And for those patients, metastatic patients, um, it's oftentimes to find a trial, a difficult to find a trial if you have metastasis because there are so many exclusion criteria mm-hmm. um, in clinical right. trials. But there's a, there's a trial search called um, metastatic trial search. And okay. um, that can be found at uh, breastcancertrials.org or on the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance website. And those are great, excellent resources for patients to find trials that they're interested in. Their doctors do not have to refer them. They can, they can you know, and, um, inquire on their own whether or not they're interested. They should always be, in t- they should always, of course, you know, talk to their doctors and consult their doctors about oh, what they're yeah. interested in. But they don't have to wait for their doctor. I think any trials that they find that they're interested in, they should discuss with their doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't have to wait for the doctor to say, "Here's a clinical trial." Okay. Yeah. Well, th- yeah. We are, and I found that out of- with um, with my daughter going through um, her bout of breast cancer. She was diagnosed in August, 33 years old, triple negative, mm-hmm. and so that's one of the things that I could do, being mom, <laughs> mm-hmm. is to kind of research some of those clinical trials. And so we found several things that she could get involved in. And again, to your point, not everything is um, geared toward you. For instance, um, one sure of the enough. ones that sure. I thought for sure we were going to get involved in, um, you know, for triple negative, allowed uh, entry into the clinical trial when your tumor was so big and, you know, if it had lymph node involvement and all this kind of stuff. And shockingly enough, her... Um, chemotherapy was 100% efficient, and so she oh basically walked away without any cancer when she did her double mastectomy and reconstruction. So luckily, we didn't have to use that trial, but we were ready in case we did, so... Well, ladies, That's we are out of time. Man. I'm going to get the 30-second uh, measure here. And just don't, There it is. Okay. So sorry about we, that. <laughs> we, need, we need to go. Um, Dr. Flowers, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much uh, for giving us some time. And we will be back next week. Until then, remember, there's always hope, and we're here to help you find it. Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Radio. Please join Sharon Hannafin and Becky Olson again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. There is always hope and we'll help you find it. We'll talk again next time.